That was great. I wish we had a camera recording all of you. It's the moment that song started. Like, oh, you know, everybody was in sync. So I guess you know the song. Uh, you know, um, when our daughter Kat uh, was 11 years old, we had just moved to Houston. And for her 12th birthday, she asked us to take her to build a bear. Don't think that this is my support animal. Uh, <laughs> it's a prop, okay? Uh, and, and, and she wanted to have her, her own bear. If, if, if you've been to build a bear, you know what the deal is about. Uh, you go there, you take your, your children, and what they do is they first select, you know, a, a stuffed animal. Now they have more than bears. It used to be just bears, but now there's all kinds of things. So you would pick the color of the bear, and then you select the outfit. You know, you could pick uh, like a sports uniform or, you know, a toga, or, or like in this case, for some strange reason, which we don't know yet why, Kat picked this Harley Davidson jacket uh, and these jeans, and he used to have, the, you know, dark sunglasses, and she called him Elvis. So yes, Elvis is in the building, okay? And, um, and she was nice enough to let me borrow Elvis for today's message. You may be wondering, what does that have to do, you know, Elvis and the song that we just heard with what we're going to talk about today? See, what I have noticed uh, through years of talking to, to people that need help, that have questions and stuff, is that the God that a lot of Christians have, it's, it's very much like Elvis. You know, they have created their own God. You know, they picked the accessories that they like. They took the ones that they don't like and they got rid of them. There are some accessories that they don't even want to hear about. You know, they, they just created this comfortable God that suits them. And that's their God. And that, of course, it, it's a huge problem. Because as R.C. Sproul used to say, he said, the most important thing that you can know about a person is what comes to their mind when they think of God. What images, what concepts, you know, what does it come to your mind when you think of God? Because whether you realize this or not, your idea of who God is, is the filter through which you see everything in your life. The way that you think of life, the way that you think of death, the way that you think of joy, adversity, problems, you know, marriage, work, parenting, hobbies, friendship. Everything in your life goes through the lens of who God is to you, okay? And this is so important that you can, we can with confidence say that salvation is to know God. Because this is what Jesus taught us. If you read um, chapter 17 of the gospel according to John, all that chapter is a prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. Read it one day, it's amazing. He prays for us in that prayer. But I want you to see the words that he said in verse 3. He said, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is 
eternal life. This is salvation, that you know him. It is impossible for you to have a relationship with a God that you don't know. And, and that's the problem with creating our own gods. This is why there are so many books written about the attributes of God. Because there's a lot of attributes. There's no way we can cover everything in, in one sermon. There's a lot of attributes of God. And the, the more of them that you know, the clearer the image of who God is comes to you. But I have realized that there is one attribute of God that it's very little known. Few people know about this attribute of God. Actually, when I mentioned it, some people, when I was going to preach in Cancun, I said the name, and they were like, the what? But I realized that if you understand, if you assimilate this attribute, then understanding the other more known attributes of God comes very easy. It becomes simple. So we're going to concentrate today on this one. But I'm going to warn you ahead of time. This is going to be a two-part sermon. I want to start today and finish next week. And today, I'm going to leave you totally hanging. All right? Just so you know, you've been warned. I want to pray for us, and we're going to study this attribute. Father, um, I thank you, God, for your word, for the revelation that you give us in your word about yourself. But I know, Father, that we so need your help in order to understand you and know you better. We know that there is no way we can get to know the whole of you while we're in this life and we're going to take millions of years to get to know you. But please, Father, fill us right now with your Holy Spirit, open our spiritual eyes and help us understand who you really are. Don't allow our minds to get lost in philosophical discussions, but to concentrate on you and you alone. And ask, I ask of this in, in, in the powerful name of your son, Jesus Christ. All right, so I'm going to tell you the attribute. I'm going to tell you what it means, but then we're going to study it. because so I'm going to try to help us understand it. And not only that, but I'm going to try to prove it to you, okay? The attribute is called the aseity of God. The aseity of God. It's not very well known. And not only it's not very well known, it's very hard for our finite minds to grasp what it really means. You will understand intellectually what it means, but to really grasp it, it's a little bit more difficult. That word, the city, is formed by two Latin terms. The first one is a, which means from, and then se, which means himself. So a city means literally from himself. Okay, so it is the quality of being self-derived, self-existent, and self sufficient. It is the quality of a being that nothing that is in him came from external sources. Actually, it's the other way around. Everything that is came out from him. Okay, so he doesn't need anything from the outside. Uh, it's perfect and, and self-contained. Okay, now in order to understand it and prove it, we're going to move from the simple to the complex little by little. And I forgot to warn the past service, so I'm gonna warn you, pay attention. Or you're gonna be lost, okay? <laughs> you're gonna need your thinking cap for this one, all right? Okay, 
See, in everyday language, we use words that we usually don't pay enough attention to see how deep they really are because they're, we use them all the time. For example, one of the most common ways that we greet each other is you tell another person, how are you? And the person will respond, I am fine. Everyday language. But you don't realize that you're using, you know, the most basic verb in the English language, which is the verb to be. When you use it, you're talking about the state of your existence, the state of your being. You know, every time you use I am, I was, you were, I will be, you're talking about the state of your existence. And even though the words are very simple, behind it, it's a very deep, deep concept, which is the concept of being. See, in our daily experience, we seem to think that there are different degrees of being. You know, like um, Karina and I have a friend called Sharon, she lives in the US and, and she sometimes visits us in Cancun. The last few times she came without her husband and we asked her, how come your husband didn't come? And she said, oh, he's a stick in the mud. You know, that means he doesn't like to move too much or he's a stick in the mud. So apparently sticks in the mud have a very low degree of being, you know? And then you probably have heard people refer to other people saying, he's stubborn as a mule, right? Well, mules have a higher degree of being than sticks in the mud because they're animals. So it goes in crescendo. Above from animals, we have human beings and we think we have a higher degree of being. And then if you keep going up in the scale, you'll find angels, angelical beings. And then you will go all the way up to the scale to the supreme being. So apparently we, we think that there is this concept called being in which everything that exists participates in some way, but we believe that the difference between God and the rest of the things is just a degree of being. Human being, supreme being, we think that the difference is the qualifier that we put behind the word being. But in reality, the difference is not the humanness or supremacy of the being. The difference is in the word Being, because, see, philosophically speaking, in the strictest sense of the word, none of us should be called beings. You know, we, we don't have the quality of being, not, not trees, not mules, not sticks in the mud, not humans, you know. And, and, and in order to understand what I'm talking about, we're going to have to take a crash course on philosophy, all right? I know you were not expecting going back to school today, but I can guarantee you it's going to be painless. All right? See, if we go back to the first, you know, ancient philosophers that started probing the questions about life, you know, there was these two guys who were pursuing the truth and they were pursuing what they call the foundational truth or, or the foundation reality, a, a truth so complete that it would explain all other truths. Two guys appeared approximately in the years uh, 500 before Christ, whose, whose ideas seemed to clash against each other, okay? But in my perception, their ideas kind of complement each other to explain to us a lot of what the universe and God is. The first of those guys was called Parmenides. Parmenides, and, and this guy, even though we don't have his works in full, most of his works were lost, 
We know more about his work by the reference that other authors do of his work. He, he coined this phrase that was his famous phrase. He said, what is, is. That was it. Okay? I know it doesn't sound very profound, but if you meditate on it for a little while, you would realize that it's a lot deeper than it seems because what this guy was saying is, you know, for something to exist, it has to be. In a minute, you're going to understand a little bit more about Parmenides, okay? About 15 years later came another philosopher called Heraclitus. And Heraclitus challenged the first phrase, you know, what is, is, and what he said is, nothing is. For Heraclitus, strictly speaking, being doesn't really exist because all the things that exist are in a permanent state of change. Everything is changing. And his famous analogy was this. He would say, you can never enter the same river twice. Because if you put a leg in the river and then you put your other leg, by the time the second leg goes in, it's not the same river anymore. And not only because water passed, you know, even at a molecular level, because if you put your foot at the bottom of the river and then you remove that foot and put the other foot, your foot is not standing in the same ground anymore. Because at a molecular level, it has changed. Because time has passed and everything is changing. He said, the eye that sees the river before you enter the river is not the same eye that sees the river once you're inside the river. You and I are not the same people that walked into this room 35 minutes ago. Because we're older, some of us more tired, and some of you a little bit confused, okay? But... <laughs> But what he meant is, if something defines the creatures that exist, is change. In some things, it's more evident than in others. Like you would see a mountain in the morning, and the next morning you see the same mountain, you think it hasn't changed. But in reality, it has changed a little bit. Wind, you know, rain. So Heraclitus, instead of saying being, he changed the term and called us becoming. We're not human beings, we're humans becoming, okay? So for us, the task is to distinguish between that that is, which means something that is in a permanent state of never changing, and that that is becoming, that that is all the time changing. You see, these ancient Greeks, even though neither one of them believed in the God of the Bible, in a certain way, you know, between their two statements, we can understand who we are and who God is. And they, in a way, explain very clearly who God is. Because what Parmenides said is, for something to be, if it really is, it has to be eternal, unchanging, and the basis for everything to exist. In other words, without a being there cannot be a becoming. That's the state of our existence. We are becoming, not being. And that is the difference between God and everything else. He is. And I want to try to explain to you and prove to you this in two different ways. We're going to see it biblically, you know, the way that the Bible explains these things, but we're also going to look at it rationally 
logically. See, there's a lot of people that like to teach from the Bible and they refuse to use just logic sometimes. They say, no, 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 we have to teach just from the Bible. And the problem with that way of thinking is when you are talking to a person that does not believe in the Bible, then that is called circular reasoning, circular thinking. You say, this that the Bible says, it's true. How do you know? Because it says it on the Bible. You know, that's circular thinking. So I'm going to try to prove the aseity of God to you in a biblical way, but also in a logical, rational way. Okay? You know where we find in the Bible the first time that the Bible mentioned this concept of the aseity of God? In the first line of the Bible. Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 1. It says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created, when, when the Bible says the heavens and the earth, it, it means everything that exists, okay? See, that affirmation is the most foundational belief of the Christian Bible and the most attacked by secular philosophy. Why? Because all active atheists, you know the difference between active and passive atheists. There's a lot of people that they simply don't believe. They're too busy with their lives. They're doing things, running around. They, they, they don't concern themselves with God, but they're not doing anything about it. But there's people that are actively trying to disprove the existence of God. For an active atheist, if they can get rid of the concept of creation, they can get rid of God. And if they can get rid of God, they can live their lives however they want because there's not a moral standard. This is the law of the jungle, everyone for themselves, and we can do whatever we want, okay? So everything that divides a believer from a non-believer is contained in the first verse of the Bible. So it's worth analyzing a little bit deeper. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What does that assume? it assumes that there was a beginning for heavens and earth. See, I don't know what they taught you when, when you went to school when you were a kid. When I went to grammar school last century, long time ago, what they taught me in my geography class was that the universe was infinite and eternal, that it had always been there. You know, and, and, and that is the way in which scientists got rid of creation. Because they said the universe didn't need to be created. The universe has always been here. It's eternal. You know, it's infinite. So there's no need for God. We don't need a creator if this has always been here. But then eventually, science itself proved that wrong. See, um, when Albert Einstein wrote his equations and his theory about general relativity, his equations proved that the universe was expanding and therefore it had a beginning. He didn't like it. He actually tried to change it. He added what he called a fudge factor to make the universe be static. But then this Belgian Catholic priest, George Lemaitre in, in 1927, he solved his equations and proved that the fudge factor was extra, and he posted that the universe had a beginning. That was the first time that somebody gave the notion to the scientific community that the universe had had a beginning, but it wasn't until 1990 
when they launched the Hubble telescope, that they could actually look into the past. You know what that means? You know, when you're using a telescope outside of the atmosphere of the Earth, you can look at planets and stars that are like billions of light years away. What you're seeing is the past because it takes them billions of years to get here. You're not seeing the present. That light took forever to get here. So they were able to look into the past and find the nanosecond when the universe started. And then they posted in all the scientific magazines in 1990 and they said, approximately 13 and a half billion years ago, the universe began. And you know what phrase they used? They said, the universe exploded into existence 13 and a half billion years ago. And the question that the studiers of the Bible, the theologians of the time to the scientists was like, exploded from what? What was there before? How, how did it explode? You know, um, I listened to a lot of conferences to prepare for this sermon a few weeks ago. And I listened to a conference of R.C. Sproul, one of the greatest thinkers we've had. And I didn't know this, but he was friends with Carl Sagan. You've heard of Carl Sagan? He was an astrophysicist. He was famous. He had a TV show, but he did not believe in God. And, and they started, you know, exchanging letters, which was the strange method that they used to communicate to each other in those days, you know. And um, so they started talking about this new theory, the, the Big Bang Theory about the beginning of the universe. And, and Sproul asked Carl Sagan, so what's next? You know, what are you, what are you going to do with this knowledge next? And, and he said, nothing. That's as far as we're going to go. And Sproul wrote to him saying, how can you call yourself a scientist and stop your pursuit of the truth at the most important moment in the history of the universe? And Sagan answered saying, we don't need to go any further. And Sproul said, of course you do. You're going to have to give us an account of why did this singularity happen. You have to explain it. How come one day it decided to explode into existence? Because if what you're saying is true, this explosion into existence of the universe is breaking the laws that science has stated. See, if before the universe there was nothing, as the scientists say, they say before the universe there was nothing, Okay, if that is true and that nothingness was in a perfect state of calm, it was stable, it was at rest, then you're contradicting the law of inertia. You know what the law of inertia says? I know, you didn't think you were coming to a science class today, but the law of inertia says that an object will remain at rest or in movement unless an external force acts upon it. You know, in the universe, if something is moving, only if a force acts upon it, it will not stop. On Earth, there's a lot of reasons, a lot of factors why th things slow down. You know, the law of gravity, the wind, you know, friction, it stops them. Okay, but if it's at rest, the only reason why it would start moving is if an external force acts upon it and pushes it. So the question is, there was nothing and now there is something you know, your own theory of the cosmos screams for the need of a self-existing being that is eternal and created all these things because 
all of the things that we see without that being cannot possibly exist. The moment that you say the universe had a beginning, you have two options. One, it came out of nothing. One day it popped. Two, there was something previous, self-existent, eternal, that possesses the principle of life in itself. If there was a time when there was nothing, tell me, what would we have today? What could we have today if there was a time when there was nothing? What could we? Nothing. If at some point there was nothing, we would have nothing. So the moment that you deny the existence of a self-existent and eternal being that has a seity, your only other option is spontaneous generation. And that's not called science. That's called magic. Spontaneous generation? Have they witnessed it anywhere in the universe ever? I mean, have you ever wondered the incredible explosion that nothing can cause? Look, these scientists that are smart people that are denying the existence of God in the face of evidence are going to such extremes to try to deny it that they are edging in the ridiculous. Sproul cites an essay written by a, a, an astrophysicist who won the Nobel Prize in physics. So this is a very, very smart man, a very intelligent person. And I'm going to tell you what he says. I'm going to read the phrase so I don't get it wrong. But this is what he said. The day has come in modern physics when we can no longer talk about spontaneous generation. Now we have to be more circumspect and understand that for something to come into being out of nothing requires an enormous period of time. Did you understand all that verbiage? What he said is, you can get something out of nothing quickly. But if you wait a long period of time, then that nothing will, one day will produce something. That is the alternative to the biblical concept of creation and it's a stupidity. The modern naturalists have both feet firmly standing on thin air because they have nothing. They have the evidence, but they refuse to see it. If there was a beginning, clearly there was something, not nothing, there was someone self-existing, with the power to be within himself. And this is exactly what the Bible tells us about it. Let's see what the Bible says. See, in Psalms 90, verse 2, the psalmist says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Did you see the tense of the verb? Just from everlasting, from all the way past, from all the way to the future, you are God. This is why when God introduces himself to Moses and Moses says, who do I tell them they send me? What did he say? Tell them, I am. I'm not being, I'm not become, I am. I'm the only being in this universe that is. John 5, 26, 
tells us about life. It says, for as the Father has life in himself, he has life in himself. Life comes from him because he has life in himself. And so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. The difference between God and his creatures is that he completely is. He's not becoming. God is not evolving into a better version of himself. He's not learning with time. He's not becoming wiser. You know, he's perfect. He doesn't have any weakness and he doesn't have any need for anything external. Self-sustained, self-contained, nothing that comes from the outside. He doesn't need it. We need him. But he doesn't need us. And if something should lead you to fall on your knees and worship, is to just try to imagine the greatness of this incredible God that doesn't need anything from you, doesn't need anything from me, and he just lives in absolute perfection absolutely all of the time. What about Jesus? What does the Bible says about Jesus? See, in John 17, in that same prayer that Jesus uh, prayed, in verse 5, look at his words. It says, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have been together since eternity past to eternity future, sharing the same glory. And not only was Jesus there with the Father before the beginning of time, in, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, the Apostle Paul says, and he, talking about Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So in Jesus, this whole universe, that it's, it has a size that we cannot even comprehend, and I don't have time to get into it, but the whole universe holds together things to Jesus. The life comes from them. This is why in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth, the life. Because the life comes from him. So according to the Bible, God Father, God Son, God the Holy Spirit are one. And they all share this aseity. And because of their sovereign will, everything that we see exists. And this is the logic of Sproul. And that's the Bible telling us the same thing. See, what Sproul says is, if anything exists today, then something has always existed. You understand what that means? Like when people say, like, can you prove the existence of God? It's like, sure. How? With Elvis. <laughs> you know? If this thing exists, if you exist, if the universe exists, then something, someone has always existed or we wouldn't have anything there wouldn't be anything here. If becoming exists, there had to be a being. And that is God, the creator that has existed from eternity past to eternity future. Now, I want to tell you what's the irony in the search that these philosophers had for this foundational truth. You remember in um, the book of Acts, in chapter 17, the apostle Paul is in one of his you know, uh, missionary uh, travels. And, and he goes ahead to Athens in Greece and waits there for his companions. They're going to catch up with him. And, and, and far from feeling intimidated, you know, because, I mean, the, Athens was like the crib of the greatest thinkers of the time. The Bible says that when he arrived there, his heart was grieved because he saw the amount of idols that they had all over the city. 
And he goes to the synagogue and starts preaching Jesus Christ to the Jewish people. Some listen, some don't. And then he gets out of the synagogue and starts preaching outside. And some philosophers, some Epicurean philosophers, hear what he's saying. says, like, we'd like for you to come and explain to us more what you're talking about. And Paul goes to talk to them. And, and I love Paul's sermons. You should read them in, through the book of Acts. Because Paul always molds his sermons according to the audience. He always speaks in a way that he makes sure the audience is going to understand what he's saying. So to these philosophers, he says, says, I can see that you guys are very religious because you have temples for every possible God. You're covering all your bases. You know, you're making sure that you're covered. You're covering to such an extent that you have one to the unknown God. And he says, that God that you worship in complete ignorance I am going to declare him to you in power. And he tells them one of the deepest, most profound lines that you will find in the Bible explaining who God is. I'm going to start with verse 25. But this phrase that I'm talking about is in verse 28. Acts chapter 17, verses 25 and 28 say, and he, talking about God, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else now listen to 28 for in him we live and move and have our being in god all of us we live and move and have our being see since we were children We have been kind of deceived by our senses for what we can see and for the teachings that we give in school into believing certain things. For example, you think that you have the power to generate movement, no? I mean, I can say, watch this, I'm going to generate movement, okay? Ready? Here it goes. I threw Elvis up and he came down, you know? You believe that the inherent power that I have in my arm threw Elvis up, and because of the force of gravity, he came down, and that's why he moved. At a secondary level, that's true. These are universal physical laws that God implemented in this universe for it to function. But what Paul is saying is, you and I cannot move a finger if God doesn't give us the power to move it. In him, we move. He gives us that power. In him, we live. In him, we have our, our, our being. Have you ever heard this? I'm not going to say the expellative. People that say God is dead. You know, I, it's not that I don't believe in God. I think that he just died. Do you realize what would happen if God died? In him, we live. We would disappear instantly. The whole universe would go, if God died. And, and here is the irony. See, these philosophers had been looking for the foundational truth that would explain all other truths. And Paul is declaring it to them. They have the evidence in front of their face. The God of the Bible is the truth that explains all truths. Everything that you want to explain, it's explained through the God of the Bible. But they refuse to acknowledge it. In their wise minds, they have become fools. Because in him, we live, we move, we have our being. Because he has the power of being 
in himself. And that is the majesty of the God that we serve. And this is why the universe is not about you, it's not about me, it's about him. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6 says, Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and from, from whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Everything comes from him and everything is for him. See, and, and once you understand the aseity of God, you realize how the other attributes become easier to understand. Think, for example, the uh, omnipotence of God. You know, there's three omni attributes. Omnipotent, omni means all, and potence means power. So everybody thinks, okay, omnipotence means he's all-powerful. That's not what it means. You know what it means? It means all the power that exists in the universe belongs to God, all of it. Any power that anyone has to do anything is power that he has delegated into his creatures. All of it is his, and he can take it whenever he wants, because it's his. See, Martin Luther used to say a phrase that not all people like, but it's true. He said, even the devil is God's devil. Even the power that the devil has to do things comes from God. This is why he has to ask permission to do things to God. Look at the book of Job. And then and when you start thinking into these attributes, questions are going to start coming to your mind. So what do you mean the devil? Right? All the power is his. Also, his omnipresence, it's easy to understand. What do you mean he's everywhere? We're all in him. His creation is in him. He's everywhere. Past, present, future. It's not that he can see the future or remember the past. He's there all the time. We're all in him. But you know what's the most mind-boggling thing for us? All knowledge. His omniscience. See? All his attributes applied to all his attributes. So the fact that he's all knowledgeable means his knowledge is perfect. He understands exactly how everything in this universe works. Everything. Not only perfect, but it's eternal. What does that mean? He has always known. Always. He didn't go learning little by little. He's known everything from before he created it. The theologians call this next one immediate. Says his knowledge is immediate. That means he doesn't need to wait to see a series of events to understand what the conclusion is going to be. He knows it already, everything. That means you're never going to be able to tell God, wait, Lord, this is not what it looks. Let me explain to you. He knows. He knows everything. And, th and this is why people start understanding these things and they get angry. They don't like it. This is like the people that have passwords in their phone and they don't want to let their mate or their kids have their password. And she's like, why? Because like, I want my privacy. So they get very angry when they realize God has the password. This is everything. He knows everything. But you know what's the most mind-boggling part of his all-knowing? He knows all the possibilities. See, according to the Bible, God knows all the possibilities of what would happen if anything in history changed. Try to imagine the ramifications of that knowledge. 
You know, if you had done something different at any point in your life, he knows exactly the ramifications throughout history that that change would have had. In Matthew 11, Jesus says these words. He says, ah, Capernaum, if the miracles that I have done here had been done in Sodom, Sodom would still remain today. He wasn't guessing. He was telling them. If I had done any miracles in Sodom, Sodom would have repented and they would still be here. And see, this is the problem that I have found with people. When they start understanding all these attributes, if you have an analytical mind, you're going to start asking questions. You're going to say, wait a minute. If, if he knew that doing those miracles in Sodom, Sodom would have been saved, why didn't he? And if he's all powerful and all loving, and these things are happening in my life. Why is he allowing that? How can you reconcile a sovereign God that can do whatever he wants, has the power to do it, with a good God that allows these things to happen? And that is the question we're going to answer next week. I warned you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. But before you go, I want you to just keep something in your heart because I want you to walk out of here with peace in your heart. The most admirable thing about this incomprehensible God, because it's really hard to, for us to comprehend in entirety who God is, it, it's not just that it's huge, that it's powerful, that he knows everything that is eternal. It's the fact that he loves you. For some strange reason, he's in love with you. And you know what's even better? He has always loved you. Look at what God says to the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31 verse 3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Everlasting. He's always loved you. He says, therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. See, all his attributes apply also to his love. His love for you is perfect. He can love you in a better way. It's eternal. He has always loved you and he will always love you. And the best part, it's unchanging. You can't make God love you less. All powerful, but loving. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan, and I'll close with this, was a very famous pastor that preached uh, the Westminster Chapel in London. And, and he became famous for many phrases that he would use. One time he preached a sermon on the greatness of God. It was this amazing sermon about how great God is. And at the end of the sermon, he was saying goodbye to the congregation. And this old lady, immaculately dressed, came to him and said, uh, uh, Pastor Morgan, so what you mean to say is that I should only pray for the big things in my life? Or can I also pray for the little things in my life? <laughs> and Pastor Morgan said to her, my dear lady, everything in your life to God is little. Everything. Everything that to you is important and it looks huge, to him is important because he loves you. But nothing is hard for God. It doesn't take any effort to do anything that he pleases. So just keep that in mind. It doesn't matter what you're facing. 
doesn't matter how impossible it looks to you. If it's important to you, it's important to him because he loves you. And it's tiny. No effort. Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you for what you have shown us today. And uh, I'm going to ask you, Father, for each person that is listening to these words right now, that you would just give us more understanding about who you are and to remember that even though we cannot understand you entirely, we have to remember that you love us and that you want to be with us because you are for us. Help us, Father, understand you even better. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Love you guys. <laughs> Mind blown. We'll have uh, on the Community of Faith YouTube channel. I hope you subscribe to that. If you haven't, you want to do that. This will be up this afternoon. So if you're like me, you might have to watch it like three times to get it, right? But, uh, and don't miss next week as he's going to share with us the exciting conclusion of this about God being sovereign and all that goes on in our life. So I don't want you to miss that. So glad you were with us today. Don't forget, we're going to the Astros soon. We got our shirts. Wendy told me special sale today, three for 45. All right. I love you and you have a great day, a great week, and we'll see you next week. Thank you, Marco and Karina. We love you.